Okay, so we'll, uh, now's the time to um, grab your Bibles or, or your service sheets, um, and we're going to um, have a look at God's Word together. Um, so we're looking at Deuteronomy 29, uh, starting at verse 2, uh, if you're looking in the Bible or yeah, in the middle of your service sheets. Uh, so firstly, verses 2 to 4. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did, it, did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. And then further down, uh, verses 9 to 18. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant, so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives, and the foreigners, camping, uh, foreigners living in your camps, who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here uh, in order to enter into, the co- into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath, to confirm you uh, this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You yourselves know how we, uh, how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through um, the countries on the way here. You saw among, among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Thanks, Nick. Very helpful. Just take a few minutes, if I may. I've been away this week, not to anywhere too nice. I've been to Manchester, that uh, grim city of the north. I was there for good reasons, though. I was with friends uh, from the Acts, not 22, as it's sometimes called, the Acts 29 network. Acts 29 is uh, what happens next. In other words, if you look at the book of Acts of what God did in the early church in the first century and how churches were planted and people were converted and the church grew significantly, Acts 29 is a name that's coined for what God would do next. Uh, And I thought I was going to Manchester to meet with church planters and church leaders from, from England and from England and the UK alone. But somehow they obviously heard that John Tyndall, our very own John Tyndall, was speaking. So there were people from Moldova and Turkey and America, that that place over there, um, and lots of other places as well around Europe, Portugal, and it was thrilling to be there. Uh, I don't say this very often. I was glad to be in Manchester. Not because it was Manchester, but because of these people. Let me tell you a few stories. Um, I mentioned one or two of them to, to Andy Wyatt, and he said 75, 79, when he was back in Bible college in those times, when TV was black and white, there, uh, there was only about 40, 30, 40 Christians in the whole of Turkey that uh, he could remember. And we have been praying on and off for a couple of years for a man called Karem and his wife Buse Huck. They're in Alitalia in Turkey. 
when Acts 29 start a network, when they identify a new country and they find someone that wants to partner with them, after a few years, they, they hope that the network would grow, finding like-minded men and women who want to plant churches and who share the same faith and same convictions. Just two weeks ago, uh, Karem and Bousse um, were part of a church network gathering of Acts 29 churches and pastors in Turkey, and there were 80 pastors, not 30, 40 Christians, but 80 pastors. You might think, wow, that's amazing. The challenges they face are huge. There's something like 0.000, maybe even another zero, one percent of the population of Turkey are Christians. So the statistics reveal a huge spiritual poverty uh, of love of the Lord Jesus Christ in Turkey. But although that situation is real and the challenges are huge, what an encouragement to hear that God is at work in that country, quietly, slowly, but 80 pastors getting together to learn and be trained and equipped for the mission at hand. Uh, I met some excellent young men and women as well who are planting in hard places up and down the UK. So an excellent young man planting to the south of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is lovely if you go to Prince's Street. It's lovely if you go and is it Arthur's Seat where you can look over the city. It's a huge, needy urban area as well. There's a man called Mes McConnell who's got his hands on a load of money from our American brothers and sisters. And he set up a new organisation called 20 Schemes. 20 Schemes goes into places and sets up new works in places that you and I do not want to live. So this is the places where there will be drug dealers on the corners, where um, alcohol abuse will be part of everyday life in the culture of hard inner city areas where people live on top of each other, literally. Um, and an excellent young man who's starting a new work uh, in there where the local pub was shut down because there was a knife attack. Um, and he's going in there now and saying, can we reopen it and have it as a church and as a community centre? So we need to pray for men like that. His name's Andy Prime. There's another work starting in uh, Inverness. You think that's another nice kind of part of the world with lots of oil money up there. It's not. It's a hard context. So we can pray for another man, Ian. He's got his surname. He's, a, he's at work up there. The church in Portugal is growing. Um, works in Greenwich in London, closer to home. There's a new work that's going to begin there to the arty community. They didn't ask me. They're asking someone who's good at art. But just for your encouragement, it was a thrilling couple of days with excellent ministry from our own John Tyndall. Uh, he was very relaxed in his own hometown, but also another man, forgotten his name, Ready, Steady, Grow, Ray Evans. Ray Evans is a pastor of a church in Bedford. He's an excellent teacher, trainer, and equipper. So um, we were thrilled to be part of that. I got back Thursday and was glad to be south of the Watford Gap. Um, let me pray for a few of those things and then we look at God's word together. Father, it's been such an encouragement for me and for others in the Acts 29 network to meet together. Thank you for the excellent and the hard work from friends at Grace Church in Manchester where Mike and Melissa Tyndall minister faithfully. Thank you for the measure of blessing they've known in recent years. Thank you for all the uh, hard work and admin that went on behind the scenes by friends from that church. And for the 130 pastors and wives that gathered, we commit each one to you. It's lovely being away for a couple of days, uh, being encouraged and sharing burdens and praying and being fed together spiritually. But Father, as we go back to church context, unlike this, there are so many difficult situations. Uh, men attempted to give up, women attempted to be discouraged. But we commit each one to you for new endeavours, for new works, like the ones in 
uh, Edinburgh and Inverness and Greenwich, the new efforts in Portugal, a friend from Moldova, what you're doing in the Netherlands. Father, please have mercy in this generation and spur on these couples who are engaged in gospel ministry on the front line. Many of them are struggling for financial resources. Please will you provide for their every need. Many are working by themselves. Please would you keep them holy in their loneliness. Please would you um, enable the internet and Skype and FaceTime and other things to be an excellent means of connecting with people that they wouldn't struggle on in silence. We commit them to you and we pray for ourselves and friends in the FIC as well. Nationally and globally we want to be engaged in the priority of praying for gospel growth. Please would that begin in our hearts and extend to the ends of the earth that your name would not just be uh, ignored or used as a swear word but your name would be named and also known and we pray that that would be our experience even this morning we pray. Amen. People's dying words uh, reveal a great deal. I went on the internet this morning and let me share a few of the ones that captured my eye. There's the unexpected words of a person that's about to die. Think of Bing Crosby, the excellent uh, entertainer and singer. He said, well, that was a great game of golf, fellas. And then shortly later, he died. There's um, words of needy. Whose famous large words are these? Kiss me, Hardy. Nelson. There's words of regret by the economist John Keenan's. I wish I'd drunk more champagne. There's words of advice from someone like Oscar Wilde. He said, either this wallpaper goes or I do. Shortly later, he died. This is the best one I found on the internet uh, last night. Spike Milligan. I told you I was ill. And then shortly later, he died. Um, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of four sermons by Moses. God has spoken to Moses and he's trying to equip and train and inspire and challenge the next generation of God's people. And uh, in this passage, we've skipped a big section of law and instruction of detail about blessings and consequences if you turn your back on God. That's focused primarily in chapter 28. But in chapter 29, we've got one or two sentences that are really nearly Moses' last words. That's why I want to look at them. What would you say if you knew that you were about to die? Here's what Moses chooses to say. Look at verse 9 of chapter 29. Moses says, Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. It's kind of a strange thing to say. Moses is not concerned with champagne. He's not concerned with golf. He's not concerned with illness or wallpaper. He's saying, This is what I want you and this is what you need to hear. You need to understand that a relationship with God, your relationship, Israel, with God, it's about covenant. It's about covenant. And we've spoken about this a number of times without really zooming in and digging down and, because I've been with Americans, drilling deep on what this means. What is a covenant relationship with God? This passage is about that. And I want us to think about this in three ways, as always. Uh, the uniqueness of the covenant. Why is the covenant unique? What does it mean? What does the covenant relationship look like? There is a mystery that surrounds the covenant throughout the Bible, and then who's the hero of the covenant? That's where we're heading. Here's the uniqueness of the covenant. One of the reasons we need to look at what the covenant means and what a covenant is is because our modern society, we don't use the word covenant anymore. We don't know what it means. I, we spoke about this a few weeks ago. We're far more happy to terms about a consumer relationship with people 
rather than what a covenant understanding means. This is what a covenant looks like, verse 12 and verse 13. Moses says, You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people. Last week we were in chapter 11 and we saw that there is the language of the personal pronoun. It's the language of ownership, the language of intimacy, the language of love. God says, you are my people. I am your God. That's the language of intimacy. So I say that Joe is my wife. This is my house. You are my people. And God looks upon an Israel who don't deserve it, on a people that have not earned it. And God says, purely because I've chosen to love you, you are my people and I am your God. It's uh, intimacy and it's love. You can see that from these verses, verse 12 and verse 13, as his people. But also, it's more than that. Look at verse 13. It's not just a language of a relationship. It's also the language of law. That's what the word covenant means as well. Love, intimacy, but also law. Verse 13. Because verse 13, Moses says that you're going to seal with an oath. There's something of uh, confirmation. So that's a dis different aspect of what it means to be in covenant. You've got intimacy and love, but now verse 13, there's also an aspect of law. There's an aspect of law and oath and confirmation. So what is a working definition of a covenant? A covenant is more than an intimate relationship of love and commitment. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. But it's not only that. It's an intricate and personal relationship that is saturated with accountability. It's binding, it's enduring. So it is a personal relationship, but it's more than that. It is legal and binding, and there are consequences of blessing, and there are rules for breaking, but it's not only that. So it's law and it's love. It's commitment and it's intimacy. It's binding and it's permanent. That's what the biblical metaphor and picture of covenant language is. It's a, it's a stunning blend of these two things, of law and love, of intimacy and consequences, of binding promises between two people. That's what makes a covenant. When people understand what it means to be loving and faithful and committed one to another. And modern society doesn't really have a language for this. Modern society, we've mentioned this before, but it's important to get a handle on it, so we'll do it again. Modern society doesn't really use the language of covenant anymore. When it comes to relationships in the modern society, commitment is not absolute. My needs are what is absolute. In modern language, in a modern relationship, you are there to meet my needs. And if you do not meet my needs, then I can move on. And if you've got a problem with that, that's your problem, not mine. Covenant has been misplaced and done away with and consumer actions and consumer priorities and the self, which is the all-powerful uh, centre of uh, process and beingness, that is what is in control. So we have two people in modern society who look at each other and they say, I will be part of a relationship with you as long as you meet my needs. As long as you are the best as you can be, I will be in a relationship with you. But if I break the consequence, you need to forgive me. I will be with you as long as you are what you should be. And if you're not, I'm out of here. 
That's a modern definition of a relationship. But in a covenant, two people look at each other. Sometimes they exchange rings. Sometimes they have a covenant and it's not a marriage. And they say this, I will be what I should be, whether you're being what you should be or not. It's a covenant, it's love and intimacy, but there's also a commitment and there's a, a power and there's a, a desire from the heart to be what the other person should be and to love them even if they don't love you back. That's the definition of covenant. But that's not to say that every single relationship you have will be a covenantal one. What do I mean? I have a good relationship with my news agent. They know me and I know them. Um, when I run out of milk again, I have to go and spend £1.50 on a, pound on a pint of milk. It's absolutely ruinous. Now, that is not a covenantal relationship because I do not go to them and say, I will always buy from you. Even if you rip me off, even if you put the price up, I'm still buying from you. I know that if I go and get in my car and go to Audi or Lidl or Tesco's, I can get two pints for a pound. Sometimes I can get four pints for a pound. That's a consumer relationship and that's okay. But... There are some relationships in our lives that will help us to understand what a biblical covenant means. They are covenantal relationships, not consumer relationships. Marriage is the clearest picture we've got, for those of us that are married, of a covenant promise of love and intimacy, but also of promises and consequences as well. If you uh, have these two extremes, there are some relationships in the middle as well. If you're part of a sports team saying, I will be part of your team, I will be part of this... Um, Society, I'll be part of this group of uh, people who love patchwork quilting and I'll be here every week, you can rely on me. That is part way between consumer and covenantal. But when we come to God, one thing the Bible wants us to understand is this. You cannot come to God with a consumer understanding. God doesn't do one or the other. He's always in a covenant relationship. People say, well, I'm interested in God, I'm interested in spiritual things, but I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And if it's not working for me, I want to be able to leave. Because that's a modern understanding of relationship. I want a personal relationship with God, says most people, but I don't want it to be covenantal. And Moses is saying this, almost from his deathbed, that is impossible. When you have a relationship with God, it is always covenantal. It's always covenantal. It's always on his terms. It's always with blessings, but there's also consequences as well. God has all the initiative. He has all the commitment, but we have an active role to play as well. And Moses says this, look, verse 12 and verse 13. Every time God comes into relationship with people, he only and always relates in terms of a covenant. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, it's always this blend and mixture of law and love. It's a covenantal relationship. That's how God relates to us. And if we see these pictures, whether it's a, a relationship on earth, and when we see these people in the Bible, or put it this way, if, if marriage is a picture of a covenantal relationship, is a fulfilling picture of what it means to be a covenant, if it's not consumeristic, if it is a commitment of people loving one another even when they don't love you back, if that gives you fulfillment on earth, isn't that a wonderful picture of how we must relate to God? We must relate to God in terms of the uniqueness of the covenant where he takes all the initiative, he gets all the parameters of the covenant and we must love him back. 
It's the, uh, the uniqueness of the covenant is how we are to relate to God. He sets the parameters and we respond to him. But then there's a mystery as well. The mystery of the covenant. What do I mean by that? There's blessings and there's consequences. We don't like to think of this way in the modern world. But chapter 28, if you look back at it, and if you read it perhaps over coffee this afternoon, there is a list of one of the longest chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. Verses 1 to 14, here are all the blessings that God will pour out on his people. But then verse 15, if you do not obey God, here is the appropriate response of God, because you're in a covenant relationship with him. If you fail to keep the covenant relationship with God, this is what will happen. And they're almost a mirror image of blessings and curses, of covenant obedience and covenant disobedience. And then looking down in verse 9 of chapter 29, it says this, Carefully follow the terms of this covenant, so that you may prosper in everything you do. These are the blessings. If you follow God, if you obey him with your heart, soul, mind and strength, then this is the blessing. But there's also the conditions down in verse 18 of chapter 29. We heard it read, but make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord your God and worships other gods. That's getting into the area of consequences. That's getting into the, the area of the conditions of the covenant or the penalties. It's, they're appropriately there to keep us honest, as it were, to make sure that you're in no doubt that this is a contract between God and his people. There's a way of blessing, there's a way of life, and there's a way of cursing, there's a way that leads to death. The Bible's very clear on that. And so it says down in verses 19 and into 21, don't let there be any man or woman, clan or tribe, who begins to worship other gods. Verse 20, the Lord will never forgive the one who does this. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him. The Lord will bring about him disaster according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Do we really have to read that bit? Yes. Because this is a picture of God's blessing, but also the reality of God's curses. And it should raise in your mind a great big question that the Bible is unashamedly uh, focused upon from now and then. When you hear God says these words, I will never forgive you if you break the covenant, all the curses will come down on you if you break the covenant. When God says that, how does that work with the, the fact that God is loving? With the fact that God makes promises and keeps them? The fact that God is a just and a forgiving God? That sounds like God's got a big stick to kind of beat us with, or God's going to zap us from heaven. I mean, do you really want people to become Christians or not? Why are we looking at a passage like this? But the point is this, God is a God of covenant when there's the way of obedience and there's a way of disobedience. There's a way of blessing and there are consequences if we turn our back on God. And all through the Bible you have this wrestle. If you read the Psalms, you'll read sentences like this. I cannot bless a disobedient people. I can't do it, says God. But then there are other sentences that says, I will never leave you. I will never give up on you. I will always accept you. I will never forsake you. And you're saying, well, which one is it, God? Are you going to... Uh, punish your disobedient people? I thought you were a God of forgiveness. Or are you a God who keeps his promises with his people even when they turn their back on you? Other places in the Psalms it says, I can only bless you if you do this. And then there are other times in the Bible it says this, I am going to bless you no matter what. 
And there's this huge tension, theologically, from God's point of view. There's a huge tension that drives the narrative forward in terms of a, a story point of view. How will, how can a God of greatness and glory and mercy and holiness and a people who continue to turn their back on him and disown him, who say they will follow him and then don't, who say they will obey him and then turn away from him, how... And is it possible for God to keep his promises and love his people? How is that possible? Will God just give his people, will he, will he give in and just accept that they're a bit of a bad bunch? Or will God's justice somehow be satisfied? It's this huge tension of the Bible that God will not break the covenant. God will keep his promise because he is faithful. And yet, time and again, women and men, boys and girls, are faithless, just like me. How do you resolve it? This huge tension that goes through the Bible. I think verse 13 is very helpful in understanding how God resolves the tension. Verse 13, that he may be your God, that God may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There is an oath that is made in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham. We mentioned it a while ago. In Genesis 15, there's this huge tension that's going on at the beginning, so to speak, of the narrative of the whole of the Bible. God's people already have broken God's heart. God's people have already been dispelled from the Garden of Eden because they've chosen the way of disobedience rather than obedience. They've chosen to follow their own ways rather than to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And the question is, how will God honour the promises that he's made to Abraham? And so he puts Abraham into a deep sleep in Genesis 15. Darkness descends and God appears. God appears in his manifest glory. And he takes parts of an animal. Abraham, take these animals and make a corridor that I can walk through so that I will make a covenant with you. I will cut and seal a covenant with you. And I will take upon myself all the covenant consequences whether you keep the covenant or not. And there are two big surprises. Just refresh my mind on this, how radical this is. Here's the two shocks. God says, I swear loyalty to you. I swear that my promises will come true and the world will be blessed through you. Kings will come through you, Abraham. And these two huge shocks. One is that God goes through these animal pieces. But here's the second shock. Abraham never went through the pieces himself. That's how a covenant was made. And it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, Therefore God made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham knew what God meant when he said that. God would take on all the curses. Abraham would receive all the blessing. And this is what struck me afresh this week. God was not just saying, Not only will I be torn to pieces like these animals if I break the covenant if I don't keep my side of the bargain. But I will be torn to pieces even if you don't, Abraham, as well. And that came afresh to me this week as God came down and went through the pieces, this legal, physical, covenant-making process. God is saying, I will keep my side of the bargain, Abraham, and if I don't, I'm going to be ripped to pieces. But guess what? Even if you don't, and I know your heart, and I know you will not keep them, I'm going to be ripped apart for your sake as well. These two huge shocks that Abraham begins to understand. And of course, if we know the gospel story, that happens. Thousands of years later, 
when Jesus Christ is ripped apart, when thorns go into his body, when a spear goes into his side, when a crown of thorns are on his head, when he's spat upon, when he's scourged, it's happening for us. The darkness descends upon Jerusalem and the glory of God is almost distinguished as he's ripped apart, just as he promised to Abraham. Now why? Because on the, go- on, on the cross, through the death of Jesus, the consequences of the covenant are laid on him. And because the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus, the blessing of God can be poured out on us. It's a remarkable truth of the gospel. And Paul is wrestling with this, a New Testament writer, and he says this is how it's possible in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us, Christ rescued us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us, he rescued us, he paid the price for us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, says Paul, might come to us. How? Through Jesus Christ. Now what that means, if the covenant is unique, if it's mysterious, is that Christ is the hero. This is where we're going to get personal and to application. Here's the third point. Christ, therefore, is the hero of the covenant. If on the cross he's taking the curse of the covenant, if he is being ripped apart for us like like God promised to Abraham, and yet if he's raised to life for us, that proves that the blessings can be ours. In Romans 4, Paul was wrestling with this as Christ is the hero of the covenant, and he says, how can God be just but also justifier at the same time? This is how through the ultimate blend of law and love, through the cross. Jesus' perfect life, fulfilling the requirements of the law, Jesus' sufficient death, taking the punishment that we deserve. That's what it says in verse 9. Therefore keep the words of this covenant, says Moses, and do them, that you may prosper in all you do. Now I know my heart, and I know that I can't do that, which is why Jesus has come to rescue and ransom and to uh, be part of the covenant for us and to fulfill all the uh, jot and tittle of the law. But I want us to think about this. This is all a bit remote. And so here are four applications of what I think this means. This mystery of the covenant, the uniqueness of it, and then Jesus Christ being the hero of the covenant. What does that mean? Four applications. Number one. First of all, the law of God is the conditions of the covenant. The law of God is the condition of the covenant. You have to take the law of God, if you're a Christian here this morning, we've seen this throughout the book of Deuteronomy really seriously. You can't be careless about it. But listen carefully, especially if you're not yet a Christian here this morning. You think, oh, here you go again, banging on about the law of God, and that's how you become a Christian. If you're a really good person, and if you read enough and give enough and obey enough, see that God will love you. No. We know that that's not possible. We cannot obey God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that we fail. It's not if I fail, if I disobey, it's when. So what role does the law of God have in our life? The gospel, the good news is that because Jesus lived the perfect life and died in our place, we don't have to obey the law of God so that we get God's approval and so that he accepts us. We are accepted because of Jesus Christ, not because of our own obedience. It's not how we earn salvation. But I want to obey God. I want to take the law of God and meditate on it and live it out as a sign of my love for God. 
That's the use and the purpose of the law. It's uh, the obedience towards the law. It's my way of saying thank you to God. And also, as I do that, I become more like Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. It's the conditions of the covenant. So you take the law of God really seriously. It's not something you flick through. It's something you understand. And it's something that you turns into gratitude of all that Jesus Christ has fulfilled for us. But also it's saying, God, with your help, help me to live a life devoted to you. That's the first one. Here's the second one. If you understand that Jesus Christ is the hero of the covenant, it leads to absolute trust. Absolute trust. What do I mean? Getting married, and Joe's not here so I can say this, getting married is a really risky business. You make promises, you exchange rings, but you really don't know what you're getting in for. You stand up before people and you say to this other person, to your wife, to your husband, I'm going to live my life devoted to you. I'm going to give everything to you. I'm going to care for you when it's easy. I'm also going to care for you when it's hard. But you don't know if they will really do that for you and you certainly don't know if you will do that for them. You don't know. But you trust that you will. I'm not sure of my own heart, let alone the heart of the other person that I've known for a, a while and I've been engaged to for a while. So marriage is scary. So too are other covenantal relationships when you're doing a building project. That's scary. When you go into a covenant because you want to uh, have a financial agreement with someone, that's scary too. But when Jesus calls us into a covenant relationship with him, that is actually not scary. That is a relationship of absolute trust. Why? Because the Bible says that Jesus, Jesus' relationship to the church is a picture of marriage, where Jesus takes all the risk and he has proven the extent of his love so that you can look at Jesus and you can say, I can have absolute trust in you because I'm not going in with my eyes shut. I'm going in with my eyes open. And when I look at the cross, I can see the extent of which you love me. So I will trust you, not in part, but in full. I will love you, not in part, Lord, please help me to love you in whole, because I want to trust you absolutely with my heart, because you've taken all the risk. And I can see on the cross the blend of love and intimacy and law, because you've kept the covenant for me. He's already died for you. Trust him, absolutely. Number three, it leads to, if you see Jesus Christ as the hero of the covenant, it leads to church membership. How did you get that? Well, here we go. If you understand the gospel, it's about accountability. It's about accountability to the God who has made a relationship possible with us, and that is not a horrible thing. In the world and modern society, accountability is bad. It's something to be run away from. You want to be mysterious. You want a, a relationship that you can always run away from. But in the gospel, when Jesus Christ dies and wins for himself and for the glory of his Father, a bride, the bride of Christ, which is the church, it's you and me, you begin to understand that accountability is good for you. And that means the way you interact with the church is not a consumer relationship. You don't come to this church or to another church and say, I'm just in and I'm out. I want to park in the best place, I want the best cup of coffee, I don't want any sort of uh, burdens or any commitments. No, when you understand the gospel, you begin to see, I want to lay down my lives for people who love Jesus. I want to serve. What can I do to bless you? How can I help you? I want to support you. I want to listen to you. I'm happy to take on responsibility and I'm happy to be accountable to one another. 
And I don't see authority, loving Christ-like authority, as a bad thing. I see it as a healthy thing and a good thing. So I want to join a life group. I want to set out chairs. That's not beneath me. I want to do that. I don't want to get here last. I want to get here first when I can. I don't want to leave the prayer meetings for people that can just get there. I'm going to set my alarm clock and I'm going to get there when I can. Because I'm committed to the God of the gospel and the God that these people love in this locality. So membership is a good thing. I know it's going to cost resources. I know it's going to cost time. I know I'm going to have to speak to that guy about what it means to be a member of a church. But accountability is a good thing. And that's all because of the gospel, that God has won for himself the bride of Christ. And you want to work through the implications of the gospel, which means accountability is a good thing. Fourthly, finally, it means you get serious about God. When you see Jesus Christ as the hero of the covenant, you begin to get serious about God. You go to Waterstones, if that still exists, or you go to Amazon, that definitely exists. You type in spirituality, you'll get a load of junk. But were you to read one or two of those books from the library because it's free, you will find that the God of Eastern spirituality is small. You will find the God of modern spirituality is wimpy. When you come to the God of the Bible, you recognise that you're not dealing with an ethereal, wimpy God, but you're dealing with a God before whom you should be bowing. A God who demands not just respect, but awe and reverence and the appropriately, biblically defined use of the word fear. Because this God is real. C.S. Lewis says this, an impersonal God, well, well and good, a subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness who's inside our own heads, well, better still, a formless life force surging through everyone. A vast power which we can all tap into. Well, that's best of all. But a living God pulling at the other end of the cord, approaching you at infinite speed, the hunter, the covenant lord, the husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Now, supposing you really found him we never meant to come to that. But worse still, what about if God found you, the God of the covenant? Let's pray. Father, left to ourselves, we would be happy with an impersonal God who meets our agenda and for whom we can um, get off the shelf when we face suffering and difficulty and then put back on the shelf when life is going well. That's a God of our own making, a God who can't challenge us, but a God who's there to meet our needs. Father, when we come to the Bible and see that you're the God of the covenant, all those characteristics should go out the window. You are the God who demands and commands our worship, our hearts, our lives, our very all. Any offering we can bring to you is an offering that's far too small. But we thank you that as we look at Genesis chapter 15 and ultimately as we understand the cross a little bit better, we see that on the cross, Jesus' perfect life came to an end. And Jesus' uh, sufficient death was the start of a new beginning. Left to ourselves, we will always fail you. But in Jesus, we see someone who models the perfect life that we could and should have lived. 
Father, thank you for him. Help us to claim him afresh through faith. And Father, help us to understand the law as a means that we can live to you in the sign of gratitude. It doesn't change our status because we will always break it and we will always fail. But at that time, help us to look up and see Jesus Christ pleading on our behalf and for whom you find his offering very acceptable. Thank you for him and we praise you for the covenant. Amen.